Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we'll speak with Dr. Brian Ficker about a Christian approach to poverty alleviation. Ministry Network has just launched a new training program for pastors called Behind the Pulpit. It's an intimate journey through the hard-won lessons in ministry with John Piper, Tim Keller, Alistair Begg, Stephen Lawson, Conrad and Bayway, and many more. Visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash behind the pulpit to learn more about this new opportunity for pastors. And now let's talk with Dr. Fickert. Would you mind opening us up in a word of prayer? That'd be great. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to do this. Lord, there's a gazillion podcasts and webinars going on right now. And I know that our audience probably feels inundated by information. Lord, we pray that you would just do something here that would equip the listeners with exactly what they need to hear. Lord, we believe that there are poor people who need real help. We believe that your church is called to be the embodiment of your kingdom in this world. And Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. And Lord, so we ask for a miracle. We ask that somehow something that we're doing here on this little podcast might advance your kingdom, bring glory to your name, that would strengthen your church and help people who are hurting. And we pray that you just help us to speak clearly, help us to relax, bind our tongues so that we don't say something stupid. And may our words be edifying to your church, your people, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, Dr. Fickert, thank you so much for joining us on Ministry Network. It's great to be with you today, James. You can just call me Brian. Okay, okay. (laughs) So I am thrilled to talk about When Helping Hurts in Poverty Alleviation. It's great to be with you, James. You know, God blessed this little book in ways we never could have imagined. Actually, Westminster Seminary Bookstore was crucial in that. When When Helping Hurts first came out, the Westminster Seminary Bookstore helped launch it. And so we have a lot of sales because of the ministry of Westminster Seminary Bookstore. We're so thankful for all you folks. Oh, man. Well, I can tell you this, that the bookstore was put on the earth to help promote books like yours. So (laughs) we were so thankful. I thought you were going to say just to promote our book. Just for your book. (laughs) Which, of course, fits my worldview. (laughs) That's perfect. Well, I'm wondering, can you open us up by sharing a little bit about your background? Sure. Actually, my father was a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Wisconsin. I'm a pastor's kid. Uh, From a very young age, I felt called to work amongst the poor, to help people who are poor. And so life has just been kind of about figuring out what was my role in that story? What was my role in God's overall plan? And by God's grace, was able to go off and get a doctorate in economics, specializing in international economics, with specialization within that on poverty alleviation. And uh, thought I was going to go out and work for a global organization like the World Bank or something doing global policy work. And I often said the last thing I would ever do would be to teach at a small Christian college. And the Lord had other plans for me. And so I actually took a position right off, out of graduate school at the University of Maryland. Was enjoying being at that major research university, was doing consulting work for the World Bank. But then the Lord did uh, a number of things uh, in my life, and could impact that a little bit more. But but basically, I came to believe that my discipline, the discipline of economics, didn't really understand what a human being is, and as a result, really couldn't address poverty effectively. I was also growing frustrated with how the church was thinking of what a human being is, and it didn't think the church had it quite right. And then, uh, believe it or not, I was walking through a bookstore one day and picked up a book 
written by one of the original professors at Westminster Seminary, R.B. Kuyper. It was a book called The Glorious Body of Christ. And I taught a Sunday school class at my church. I was an elder in Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Maryland. I taught a Sunday school class on the doctrine of the church and the process of teaching about the church. I just fell in love with what the church was supposed to be. And so wrote a letter to Covenant College and said somebody should start a center that would equip churches to work amongst the poor more effectively. And somebody should start an undergraduate program that would do that as well. And so we've been, my wife and I moved here. We've been here almost 24 years. We're able to start this thing called the Chalmers Center that tries to equip churches to walk amongst the poor more effectively. And also start an undergraduate program in community development. And so God has blessed all of that. And so, so I'm in a very different kind of it's always been about poverty, but I, I didn't really anticipate ever being on a podcast about the local church and the poor. God kind of <laughs> dragged me into that, and it's been a really remarkable and wonderful journey. That's amazing. Wow. And can you tell us a little bit about how you would frame the church's responsibility to care for those in need? Yeah. You know, I really believe that our understanding of the church's mission amongst those who are materially poor is rooted in a larger story of what God is doing in the world. And, you know, that really is rooted in that great story of creation, fall, redemption, and finally consummation, right? And I think if we understand all of life in light of that big story, it helps us to frame our work amongst the poor. You know, God's on a mission. He's on a mission to establish his kingdom. And and that mission unfolds throughout the Old and New Testaments. And, you know, one of the things that we see in the Old Testament is that God chooses this nation of Israel as the primary manifestation of his kingdom in the here and now. And and that nation was to be a sneak preview of the coming attraction of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. For those who are younger listeners, they might call it a trailer. That makes no sense to me whatsoever because it comes before. But Israel was a sneak preview or a trailer of the coming attraction of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And, you know, as part of that sneak preview, as part of that trailer, Israel was to embody what that kingdom was supposed to look like. When you looked at Israel, you're supposed to get a sense of, ah, oh, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, this is what it's going to be like, right? Well, it's, it's interesting that as part of that sneak preview, as part of that trailer, God gives to Israel numerous commands to care for the poor, Commands about gleaning, commands about offerings for the poor, commands about forgiveness of debts, command after command. And it's all kind of summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 15, 4 that says, There should be no poor among you. If you obey all these commands, there should be no poor among you because if you're going to be a sneak preview, a trailer of that coming kingdom in which there is no more poverty, you should have no more poverty amongst you. But of course, Israel disobeys so many of the commands. And it's interesting, if you ask most of our parishioners, why was Israel sent into captivity? They'll often say, well, as a result of idolatry. And that's true, of course. But it's interesting that that worship of false gods manifested itself in a lack of concern for the poor. And so in the prophets, we see, uh, in Isaiah in particular, a warnings that, you know, you're going to be sent into captivity. And why? It's because you didn't care for the poor. You didn't care for the needy. You didn't care for the oppressed. You were a lousy trailer of the coming attraction. So, so God said, this is a long answer to your question, but this is how I would frame it. I love it. I'm, <laughs> if I had a hanky, I would be in the back waving it right now. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But it's so, so it's long, but it, it's because I, I, so often I think people think, oh, this is kind of like a tangential thing. It's not. It's central to God's mission in the world, to what he's doing. 
So in Isaiah, God sends his people off into captivity and he says, you know, I'm sending you off, but I, I've got good news for you because there's a king who's coming. It's the king who was promised to King David. It's, it's the one who will reign on David's throne uh, through all eternity. In, in the book of Isaiah, we get a picture of that king and his kingdom. And it's a picture of a king whose kingdom spreads his shalom, righteousness, justice, and peace as far as the curse is found. We read about a king who will touch the blind and the lame and the lepers and the poor. And that, that king will reestablish that kingdom. And so that, now you fast forward about 700 years and Jesus stands up in a synagogue at the start of his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4. And he says, he reads from the scroll from Isaiah and he says, that kingdom that was foretold, I am that king and that kingdom is something that I am inaugurating here amongst you. And that is his message, the message of his kingdom. And Jesus communicates his message in words and in deeds amongst the poor, amongst the lame, amongst the blind. In fact, Jesus says that he's ushering in the year of Jubilee. It's about restoration for the poor. And then, then he establishes his church. And he establishes his church to continue his mission, to continue what he was doing of declaring the good news of his kingdom in words and in deeds amongst the poor in ways that restore the poor to all that God created them to be. And so the very first thing we read about the early church in the book of Acts, they gather together for for the apostles' teaching, for fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And then what do we read? There were no needy persons amongst them. It harkens back to the language, language of Deuteronomy. There should be no needy persons amongst them. Israel failed at that. But when the New Testament church is kind of Israel restored, if you will, when it's that instantiation of the kingdom that has come, the first thing we read is there's no needy persons among them. And then throughout the New Testament, we see additional teachings and commands about the church caring for the poor in words and in deeds, embodying Christ's mission. And so that's how I'd frame it. It's part of the mission of God. It's part of his mission of reconciling all things, and the church is central to that mission. That's a long answer, but it's it's not some perfunctory kind of thing. It's it's central to the mission of God and to the church's role in that mission. Oh, amen. That's awesome. So I have some some news for you. You sound a lot more like a preacher than a Yale econ PhD. Yeah, something's (laughs) happened here. Uh, Something's happened. That's a good thing. (laughs) I, you know, it's praise God for that. I, I really am so thankful for the chance to be at Covenant College, quite frankly. And it's been a place where, you know, we're a liberal arts college that's rooted in biblical truth. And we are really encouraged by the entire community of faculty, administration, students to try to think from a distinctively Christian perspective. And so I hope that some of that has spilled over into my life over time. Oh, (laughs) you are the prime, as a covenant grad, I can say, you are a prime example of everything it tries to be. Well, we praise God for that. Yeah. So as you were unpacking how poverty alleviation is really part and parcel to what God is doing in his mission for the church. It helped situate, or, or um, I, I want to bring up an objection that I'd love for you to respond to. It's fine, yeah. So there's often this trope, you know, well, Jesus said that the poor will always be with us, right? We should focus on worship. We should use any money we have towards worship, and we shouldn't go and give it to the poor, which is sort of what Judas wanted to do. Could you rehash that story a little bit and, and respond to it? Yeah, so now I've got an economist who's trying to correct everybody's theology, which is ter- absolutely horrifying. I have kind of a, a different take on that passage. I think that passage has absolutely nothing to do with how effective 
or ineffective we're going to be amongst the poor or whether we should care for the poor or not. I have, I think it has nothing to do with poverty. So a lot of people take that passage and say, well, we're never going to eradicate poverty, which of course I don't think we will till Christ returns. We're never going to eradicate poverty. We're always going to have the poor with us. They take it as kind of a prediction that we will always have poverty. I'm sorry, I just don't think the passage has anything to do with that. I think all that's going on there is there's this really unique moment. This woman who's an outcast is pouring perfume on Jesus. She knows that this is that, that he is the unique King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that this is the most unique person and moment in all of human history. And this objection is raised that money could have been given to the poor. I think all Jesus is saying is the main event is here. And I'm that main event. And the poor are going to be here tomorrow. But the main event is me. And I'm right here. And she gets that and you don't. I think it's all that's going on there. Now, do I believe that we're always going to have poverty until Christ returns? I do. Because the fall really happened. And full shalom doesn't come until he returns again. But I think, you know, the Old and New Testaments are replete with commands for us to care for the poor. I've already kind of suggested this, but if you just want one verse, 1 John chapter 3, verses, well, it's several verses, 16 through 18, you know, rooted in the work of Jesus Christ, who leaves his throne on high to pour himself out. Against that backdrop, we are told that any of us have, if any of us has material possessions and sees our brother or sister in need, and has no compassion on them, how can the love of God be in us? Dear children, let us not love with just words, but in actions. And so so one of, we know we're saved by grace through faith alone, but one of the primary manifestations of saving faith is a life that is concerned with care for the poor. And so, again, we're not saved by works, but a believer is a person who should care about the poor. It's central to what it means to be a follower of Christ. Mm, That's so helpful. Now, many people may bristle a little bit at the idea of helping the poor because it's easy to think of them as just lazy people. Can you explain why that might not always be the case? Yeah. Well, first of all, I really appreciate the question. And are there times when I get very frustrated with poor people? Oh, my word. All the time. All the time. But we have to be very careful not to reduce their poverty to laziness. And and there's so many ways that I I could come at that. But the first thing is this. The vast majority of poor people in the world live in the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And the truth of the matter is most of the people in those settings work way harder than any of us ever do. And so just go and hang out with poor people for a day and watch them. And you will see in most settings, not all, but most settings, you will see people who are killing themselves just to put food on their table every day. So if they're working so hard, well, why is it that they're poor? Well, that gets into the the, the broader answer to your question. There's many causes of poverty. Sure, lazy people, the Bible teaches that if one is lazy, one will often be poor. But there's other causes as well, just natural disasters. I mean, East Africa right now is experiencing a a horrendous influx of locusts. Natural disaster that they didn't ask for. And so will that contribute to poverty? Of course it will. There is social injustice, and that's become a a controversial topic these days, and I understand that, and and I have frustrations with both the right and the left politically on this issue. 
But the reality of it is the fall really happened. The fall happened. It's affected every square inch of this cosmos. It affects my heart, but also affects the institutions that we create. And so if anybody should have a predisposition to believing that social structures are fallen, it ought to be those of us in the Reformed camp who understand the comprehensive effects of the fall. It shouldn't shock us. It should be like screaming out obvious that social institutions are broken because the fall affects everything. There's demonic forces at work. And quite frankly, I believe demonic forces have a vested interest in crushing image bearers of God Almighty under the cloak of poverty. Even when we see people who are apparently lazy, I think we have to be careful because so often what's really going on there isn't laziness. Sometimes it is, but sometimes there's another story. Sometimes it's lack of confidence. You know, if you've had people telling you for long periods of time that you're lousy, that you're good for nothing, that you can't do it, that you have no skills or abilities, that's going to create fear in you. Work is actually about risk-taking. You're going out there and you're, you're putting yourself out there and going, I can do this job. And if you don't have confidence, you can't do that. And so, so there are people who look lazy who are actually just lacking confidence. Many are lacking opportunity and they've given up. We're discovering an enormous amount of physical and sexual abuse that's led to all kinds of post-traumatic stress syndrome, other kinds of issues. And so often the case, there's something else lurking behind there that we've got to get to. And then, yes, some people are lazy too. Yeah, yeah. Oftentimes, laziness is the symptom, not the cause. It's really true. And there's something, often something deeper. And you know, really... Okay, there really are people out there who don't want to work. I don't want to discount that. But deep down, we have to believe that human beings are actually created for work. It's part of what we're wired for. And and so when we see a person, we've got to believe that even though the fall has happened, there is still some retention of image bearing in them that we can tap into. There's something in there that we can fan the flames of and say, we know what's lurking in there. We know that you're created for this. This is how you're wired. And so we, we have a theological perspective that gives us some sense of hope that we can fan the flames of something and make it come to life. Well, one thing I'd love to dig into now is you have such a helpful model for understanding how to help in a way that doesn't hurt. Can you, in connection with talking about the causes of poverty and then how Christians can actually dive in to offer real value, can you walk us through that process? Yeah, very briefly, if you ask most Americans, what is poverty? They will answer the question like this. Poverty is about a lack of food, a lack of clothing, a lack of housing. If you ask most materially poor people, both in the United States and around the world, what is poverty? They'll say something like this. I feel shame. I feel less than human. I feel like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. I feel like I don't have voice, like nobody cares about me. We tend to define poverty in material terms. Those who are actually poor tend to define it in psychological, social, and even spiritual terms. And so there's a disconnect between how we are conceiving of it and how they are experiencing it. And so where does that come from? Well, it comes from false understandings of 
the problem that we've got. And so what we try to do when Helping Hurts and our subsequent book, Becoming Whole, is we try to root our understanding of poverty in the biblical narrative, again, of creation, fall, redemption. And that story begins with the nature of what a human being is. And so what we see in the scriptures is that the human being is not just a body. We're not just material creatures. And we're not actually just bodies and souls either. We are body-soul-relational thingies, okay? We're body-soul-relational creatures. And that basic anthropology ought to shape our understanding of what's going on here. And so the human being, again, is this body-soul-relational creature that's designed for relationships with God, with self, with others, and with the rest of creation. And that wiring, that basic construction of us, is the right wiring for the task that God has called us to. I've been so appreciative of the work of Dr. Greg Beale at Westminster Seminary, who's really emphasized that human beings are wired for a task. The task is to be priest kings. Uh, we are to, that Adam and Eve in the garden were given the task of being priest kings who extended this garden temple uh, throughout, who were to spread this throughout the whole earth. As priests, they were to lead all of creation into worship. As kings, they were to rule on God's behalf. And so this basic body-soul relational wiring is the wiring for the task of being a priest king. So when you see that person standing there on the street corner who's homeless, or that person who's coming to your church asking for help with their electric bill, that's who they are. They are body-soul relational creatures wired to be priest kings. And so I think we should move with the stream of what God is doing in the world. The fall has happened. It's distorted all of that relational body-soul creature. And the narrative of Scripture is of restoring that body-soul relational creature to fullness, to wholeness, to be restored as a priest. You know, what does that mean? Well, if we take a material approach to people, then we treat them like candy machines. We put quarters in them, and we think something sweet's going to pop out. That's a material, a, a body understanding of the creature. But if we understand them as relational beings, we understand that that homeless person who's standing on the street corner is probably suffering from broken relationships that are bubbling up in a lack of food, a lack of housing, a lack of clothing. So we've got to stop doing is treating the symptoms, that lack of material things, and get down to the deep issues, the broken relationships that are causing that situation to begin with. And the problem is most of us approach people out of a body, material kind of framework, as opposed to out of a relational framework. And what they really need is restored relationships. By the way, James, I'm so much better at talking about this than doing it. It's horrifying. When my wife, whenever I'm doing talking like this, my wife walks in, she busts out laughing like, there goes Dr. Relationship again. <laughs> I, uh, let's just say I'm a pretty good relational theorist. The practice of it, I'm lacking at. It's hard. I, I'm very, I'm an, I, I function in a very individualistic kind of way. I don't function in a very relational sort of way. It's done a lot of harm to me and those around me. What do they say? In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> I suffer from the same disease. <laughs> well, one thing that really helped me understand your approach to poverty alleviation is when you were talking about the role of God in someone's worldview. 
and how that can actually be one of the causes of poverty. Could you maybe give an example from, I have a particular example in mind, maybe from where rats were eating people's food? <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good, thanks for the primer. Yeah, yeah, so often it's actually a faulty, under, again, four relationships, God, self, others, and the rest of creation, and they're all related to each other because we're highly integrated beings. And so a faulty notion of God and a faulty relationship with God tends to ripple through the other three relationships and drive down right into our inner beings. So I think the example you're referring to is an example from Bolivia, actually. And many years ago, a, a missionary went into Bolivia and shared the gospel in a certain sense. I'll explain in a second. Shared the gospel with some native population there, a tribe that was there. And those people came to Christ. About three decades later, another kind of missionary community develop, Christian community development person went into that village from that tribe and noticed that there was a lot of malnutrition in the village. The children were malnourished. And they noticed the men were sitting there and not doing anything. And there were mounds of corn and there were rats that were eating the corn. So get this picture. The, the men are sitting there. Rats are eating the corn. And the children are malnourished. And the missionary said to the men, who is in charge here today? You or the rats? And the men said, they kind of scratched their heads a little bit and said, I guess the rats are in charge. Well, what's going on there is that a couple things. The local people there are coming out of a worldview of sometimes called animism. Today, it's often called traditional religion. And in the traditional religion worldview, there is a creator God who is completely distant and unapproachable. And then there's all these sort of spirits hovering around that actually control life day to day. And those spirits are often very capricious. You don't know what they're going to do next. And so you kind of live life hunkered down. And your worldview is not one of, I'm an image bearer who's in charge of creation. I'm a restorer. I'm a priest king. It's not that. It's a worldview that says, I'm not fundamentally different from animals and trees, and I don't want to disturb the spirits floating overhead because if they get irritated by me, they could do bad things to me. And so it's a worldview of harmony. Don't till the soil very much. Don't upset very much. Particularly don't upset your ancestral spirits because if great-grandmother's ancestral spirit ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So this faulty understanding of who the creator is and then who they are, they don't understand they're image bearers. They don't understand that they're created to have dominion over the creation. That basic broken relationship with God ripples through to them being unable to actually have dominion over rats. Okay, so what does the missionary do? Well, remember these folks have been brought to Christ 30 years ago. But so often the way the gospel has been communicated by the Western church isn't the fullness of the gospel. It's a story that says... We have a legal problem before a holy God, which of course we do. And that what Jesus does is come to die on the cross to take care of our legal problem so that our souls can go to heaven someday when they die. Now, I believe all of that. I, I believe that we have a legal problem before a holy God. I believe that Christ pays the penalty on the cross. I believe in substitutionary atonement. I believe all of that. So I come to Christ and then the alarm clock goes off on Monday morning. What do I do? Well, that's not enough of a story. I need a fuller story to know what to do Monday through Saturday. It's a story that Jesus himself brings. Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says he's come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. 
That's why he was sent. It's a kingdom that's bringing transformation to the entire cosmos. And in that kingdom, all things are restored and human beings are restored. What are we restored to? We're restored to what we were created to be, priest kings. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are the royal priesthood, you are the holy nation. We read in Revelation chapter 5, again, this restoration to being priest kings. And so this community development person had to say to these native people, brothers and sisters, the same Christ that you believed in 30 years ago isn't just beaming your soul to heaven. He's restoring you to what he's created you to be. Here's who you are. You're image bearers of God Almighty. And you've been given dominion over creation. Well, all these native people, you're kidding me. We're in charge here? And the community members say, yeah, you're really in charge here. And they go, wow, we could like kill the rats. And so they, they're going out and they're killing rats in the name of Jesus. I'm exaggerating there a little bit. And they, they actually they actually built, uh, the, the, the community developer was, was able to teach them how to build bins and silos to store the corn. Because they were stewards suddenly. And then these guys, the, the men said, you know what? If we're image bearers, that means our children are image bearers. We should put them in schools so they can develop their gifts. And so it was that worldview transformation in their understanding of who they are, their understanding of God, self, others, and creation, their relationship to those things that unleashed them to actually be able to make sustainable changes in their neighborhood, in their community. So worldview transformation is really central. Again, the fullness of the gospel communicated is really central or you end up with people who are just sitting around waiting for their souls to go to heaven someday. They don't want to do when the alarm clock goes off on Monday morning. It's a terrible problem for the American church and we've spread that all over the world. What's amazing about your thesis is that it's so grounded in scripture and so grounded in Reformed theology. But then as more and more scientists have actually studied the question of the Protestant work ethic, there's been more and more evidence through random controlled trials that it actually does do what we should expect it to do, which is relieve people from poverty. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, there's actually, James, some of your own, your own master's thesis, looking at some of the, some of the research in the field of positive psychology and even something is called the science of happiness. And we can argue about all those terms and all of that. But it, it's really amazing how much research is coming out of the natural sciences and the social sciences right now by unbelievers saying the human being is actually deeply wired for relationship. And if we don't approach human beings that way, they cannot flourish. I mean, the truth of the matter is, what I'm talking about, right? first of all, I didn't make any of this up. It's just, I'm just telling you stuff people taught me. But there are secular universities right now in certain classrooms, which I could walk in right now and talk about the human being being wired for relationship. And they would all immediately go, yes, we already know all of that. There's a lot of overlap from the natural and social sciences right now. Mm -hmm. You could even talk about transcendence. Totally. It's, it's amazing, yeah. It's like, a, like the Bible's really true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go figure. Yep. <laughs> What's the classic thing? The scientist climbs up the mountain after decades and then we're there already, you know. Oh, I don't want to go that far, James. This, this I'm a good Vantillian. there already. A, you're a, <laughs> <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is I've had to really work and still I'm working to undo a lot of what I learned in economics uh, by thinking out of a more biblical framework. And the presuppositionalism of Intel is very helpful in this space. Very helpful. It's always a balance to appreciate what God is allowing his image bearers to learn about him and his creation, while also remembering that they're going to distort it every chance they get. That's it. And you know, it's, it's actually funny you should mention that. One of my colleagues at Covenant College said, being a professor here is a funny game. Because on the one hand, 
We want to get our students to fall in love with our disciplines. And on the other hand, we want them to be highly critical of the methodologies in their disciplines. And so it's kind of like this funny balancing act. And I, I want my students to love economics. I want them to, to master the techniques of it. And I also want them to have a very critical stance towards it all. It's really quite a balance. There's an already not yet in the liberal arts. <laughs> there is. There is. And there is a the whole common grace antithesis thing runs through all we're talking about right now. And so, again, how do we learn from the unbelievers? Because they've got great insights and they see things often way before we do. How do we cherish the great insights and yet be able to also step back and go, yeah, but there's something probably wrong here too. I've got to step back. And it's really a hard balancing act. Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Brian Fickert. In the meantime, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash behind the pulpit to learn about our new training for pastors. 